Right on. I, um, I also have a bicycle, and I once rode my bike all the way across Yarrow. Like one end to the other, it was awesome. Which is almost as, right? Almost as cool? No, it's not. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah, I was sitting in the front row and watching all those kids go. That was awesome. You just unleashed like an army going out there. And it was so cool because I just noticed they all like had their own little Bible with them, which was really cool to see. And one of them had like a cup of coffee in the other hand. And was like, she's ready for Instagram. Any moment she's going to sign up. Hey, it's good to be here. I'm all the way uh, from, like I said, from Yarrow, where I live with my family, um, which is there they are. There they are. That's my family. Anytime I have a mic and like a little bit of control over what goes on screen, I like to put my family up there because I'm just so proud of that crew. And they are, um, they went to our church this morning because they wanted, my son wanted to recite his memory verse and get a piece of candy. <laughs> That's what they do. So it's, all right, you go, you go there. But, uh, but it's really good to be here. We've been here in the setup in the parking lot this weekend and uh, having a great time. I think we've seen over a thousand people at least have come through the compassion experience out there. And if you haven't already, um, it's really worth your time. It's a really cool experience. So I encourage you to check that out. I've been excited about this weekend too because uh, as a staff person at Compassion, uh, we've really come to appreciate the partnership that we've had with Central uh, going back a number of years now. I got to be in Colombia with uh, your pastor, Matt, and Emily when they came to Colombia with us and saw them meet the kids that their family sponsors and experience firsthand what Compassion does, which was really cool. Some of you were probably here a couple years ago. We had another Sunday kind of like this and had the table set up there. And uh, here's the peek behind the curtain. After the first service, I was outside on my phone calling the Compassion office to be like, is there any way you can send me more kids in, in like an hour? And they were like, Jeremy, no, we're in Ontario and stop calling us at home. So, okay. But it was amazing. You guys really jumped in and, and, and really embraced this partnership. And, and So I want to talk a little bit about what is happening because of our sponsorships. And in this little bit of time we have, I want to talk about the gospel. Um, and I don't think we always think about the gospel and, and doing relief and, and pursuing justice at the same time. Um, and I think they've been separated, which is unfortunate because the gospel, I think, actually has a lot to say about poverty. Um, because God is, he really is no stranger to poverty. The Bible has a lot to say. The Bible's no stranger to poverty. And Jesus was no stranger to poverty, both in experience and in what he had to say. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. And, and before that, I just want to say I'm so proud to be a representative of Compassion. There's a lot of reasons why I'm really proud of this. It's, it's an organization that is, is ruthlessly committed to integrity, to doing what they say they do, really committed to being effective in what we do and measuring that effectiveness and making sure we're actually having an impact with what we say we do. But the one thing that really stands out for me is that compassion has this long-standing eternal commitment to the gospel and bringing the message of Jesus with us everywhere we go. And that's really exciting. And it, in fact, so much so that we'll get pushback at times. And I just heard about someone who they, they came through the compassion experience from the community and was like, hey, could I sign up, but like without the Jesus part? <laughs> and we're like, no, you can't go somewhere else. Um, but like even from people of faith, we sometimes get this pushback of like, why does, why does it have to be so religious? Like, couldn't you just go and help kids who need help? Like, why do you have to have this religious agenda behind what you do? And I think there's a couple things behind that question. There's a couple things that there may be some understanding that we need to, to gain uh, to address those questions. I think, I think 
someone asking that question maybe is showing me that they don't understand the fullness of the gospel and what it has to say to us. And maybe they don't understand also what is the reality of poverty and, and what it is and what it does. And so I wanna kind of talk about those things a little bit and just consider two questions. The first is what does the gospel have to say to us, to you and I in Chilliwack today about poverty in our world? And the second is gonna be what does the gospel have to say to those in our world who experience poverty about poverty? And I have a friend who likes to say, whenever he's short on time, he likes to say, you guys need to listen fast. So that's what we're gonna do today. So there's two scriptures I wanna turn to. The first is, um, I'm gonna try not to hit my microphone too often. That was the one time. We're gonna turn to first is uh, Isaiah chapter 58. And this is, this is this beautiful chapter in the book of Isaiah where God is laying out this vision that he has for what justice looks like and, and his passion and his heart for, for fairness and, and uh, equity in the world and how we're supposed to act as his followers and work on behalf of the oppressed and so on. I remember I encountered this chapter maybe for the first time that I re- can remember as a teenager and I remember being struck by the beauty of, of this vision um, that God lays out for his people at the time. But I think in the, in the interim, since then, I've, I've heard this chapter used in ways that I think aren't true to what was actually happening in the beginning. And there's some context that's important. So I want to just read just a, a short section, just a few verses, and then talk about what's going on here. So this is Isaiah 58, starting in verse 3, where it says, this is the Israelites are saying, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you haven't noticed? And then God replies, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You can't fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? These are these verses, a beautiful chapter, and you read on and you'll kind of encounter as God kind of lays out his vision. This is what I do want from you. And I've heard these verses used occasionally, not all the time, but occasionally for some to say, you know what, the true life of a Christian is to be about pursuing justice and all these other things that, you know, the, the actions that we typically associate with the Christian life, whether it's being in church together with the body of believers and, and, and hearing and, and reading scripture together and praying together, like those are of a secondary importance. What you really should be doing is, is pursuing justice. And, and I don't think there's this false dichotomy, right? It's one or the other that happens. And I don't think that's really fair to actually what God is saying in these verses. What's, what's really happening here? So in the nation of Israel, God had asked them, he said there was something called the Day of Atonement. And he said, one day a year, I want you to fast for a day, for this Day of Atonement. And the reason is, he's saying, you know, as, as the people of Israel, they're saying, we've encountered this God, and he is good. He's a good God, and he's, he's made us his chosen people, and it's not because of us, it's not our doing. It was God saying, you're my people, and I'm gonna use you in a special way. And God is just saying, this atonement that's happened for the brokenness and the sin in your life, and, and the fact that you're given access to God, it's not you earning it. And I want you to just take a day, one day every year, just to remind yourselves of that and just introduce some humility into your lives and remember 
how this all came to be. And so they're doing that, they're observing this fast, they're observing the Day of Atonement and, and doing that part, but God comes to them through Isaiah, his prophet, and he speaks to them and he says, you're missing something because while you're following this fast and you're humbling yourselves, at the same time you're exploiting these foreign workers in your midst that you employ with your employment practices. And you're, you're, you're this vindictive people who are competitive and vindictive and you don't, you're not looking like a nation of people who are, who are supposed to show the world around you how good and trustworthy God is. This is what I made you for. This is what you're supposed to look like and you don't look like it. And so in, that, in the rest of Isaiah chapter 58, God goes on to lay out what sort of outward actions he does associate with the people who are actually humbling themselves. He says it's to take up the cause of the oppressed, to loose the chains of injustice, to care for those who are in need, and so on. And you can go and read the rest of that chapter um, when you have a chance. But, but as you do, if you do, if you read on, one thing to keep in your mind and, and to take notice of is what God, God does not say. He doesn't say, you should stop fasting. Just be done with that because you did it wrong. He's not telling them to stop those practices that he's asked them to do, those, those acts of worship. In, in fact, I think this is actually, to me, I think this is one of the scripture's strongest calls to acts in pursuit of justice, and it happens in the context of a discussion of worship. The, the disciplines of the Christian when it comes to worship, I think, are inseparable from pursuing justice. And we could spend more time here in Isaiah, but I wanna move on because this isn't actually a unique theme. It doesn't just happen in this one little chapter in Isaiah. This is a theme that comes back many times, including actually in the words of Jesus. So I wanna move just to Matthew chapter 23 for a minute. And I'm gonna read a verse, but the context of this verse is Jesus has been teaching about what the kingdom of God looks like, and he's using these parables to try and explain it, trying to convey what God's kingdom is gonna look like, and he says, he tells the story of the wedding feast. And some of you know this, it's a story of the, the family throwing this feast to celebrate the wedding, and, and the usual kind of cast of characters that you would expect to show up to this kind of party don't show up. And so they just go out and they're like, well, we're, we're gonna celebrate, so we're gonna fill the room, and they find anyone, and it's this kind of band of misfits that comes to celebrate this wedding. And so as the audience hearing it, there's, there is a usual cast of characters who would expect to see themselves in a, an explanation about what God's kingdom looks like, and, and their absence, they, they're very keenly aware of their own absence in the story. And that's this group of Pharisees and religious leaders who start to get a little bit angsty. <laughs> and they start to push back and they, they wanna start testing Jesus' words. And, and it's almost like in Matthew chapter 22 and 23, Jesus goes along with it for a while and it's almost like there's a point where he just gets fed up. And he has some really strong words for the Pharisees when he says this in verse 23, he says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And then he says this weird thing about straining a gnat and swallowing a camel, which we don't have time to get into, but that's a fun verse to picture in your mind. Um, what Jesus is saying, I think, to the Pharisees there, and I think to us too, just like in Isaiah 58, is, is your worship actually changing you? Is it actually changing you inside? He's really clear, he says, he's, don't stop what you're doing. 
okay? The acts of worship, he names their, their tithing. He says, you should, you, I'm not asking you to stop doing those things. You, he says, you want, I want you to practice this without neglecting that. These things are done together. Um, but you've missed a really critical part of what it means to follow him. You've, you've missed mercy, justice, and faithfulness because, you see, our worship I think it's meant to actually change us. It's meant to change who we are. When we, we come together in a place like this, on a day like this, and we hear scripture read and taught, and we pray together as the body of believers, and we sing these songs about the goodness of God, it's meant to draw us in. It's like a rehearsal of these words. Our liturgy is like a rehearsal. And it's meant to draw us close to God's heart and bring us to an encounter of who he is. And when we encounter God and his goodness and his grace, it changes us and our hearts start to more closely resemble his heart. And we begin to surrender the things that we've been striving after and God's passions start to become our passions. And when I read and I look at scripture, there's not very many things that I think God displays as much passion for as he does his children who are lost his children who are oppressed and marginalized and vulnerable and poor. There's a quote from Tim Keller I really like. He said it this way, to work against injustice, to share food and clothing and home with the hungry and the homeless, that is the real proof that you believe your sins have been atoned for and that you've been truly humbled by that knowledge and are living a life submitted to God and shaped by knowledge of him. People who fast and pray ritually but still show pride and haughtiness toward the poor and needy reveal that no true humbling has ever penetrated their hearts. If you look down at the poor and stay aloof from their suffering, you have not really understood or experienced God's grace. Wow. So a few years ago I was in my office and I was probably, I somehow convinced myself that um, Facebook could be a productive use of my time. And as I was scrolling through their algorithm, came up with an article that they thought Jeremy Viss should read. And uh, the, it was a Business Insider article uh, and, the, and the headline was, I'm a self-made millionaire and I'm convinced there are only five ways to get rich. And I thought to myself, I don't even know one of them. so. Sure, I'll click on that. And I read this thing, and you know what? Maybe the advice would work. I haven't tried any of it, but I felt like I was reading some of the worst advice for the human soul that I could have encountered in terms of being a healthy, flourishing human being. And there was this line that jumped out at me, and it was this. It said, money is the tool that allows you to become more of who you are. No, I don't think so either. I've, honestly, some of the most anti-gospel, anti-human flourishing advice that I think I can remember seeing, because this is the really revolutionary and countercultural message of the gospel to our culture. It's that your life isn't about you. Your life isn't about you. It's about surrendering to something greater than you could ever be on your own. It's about giving up who you think you are so that God can make you who you were created to be. And so to this author, I would say surrender is the tool that allows you to become more of God, who God made you to be. 
Now, there's a piece of pushback I get sometimes when I talk about this, and that's that, you know, that the, as a church, our actual mandate is to make disciples, right? That's the mandate that Jesus gave us, and I absolutely, 100%, like, it's really clear. Jesus says, go into the nations and make disciples and baptize them, and, and that's absolutely our mandate. But just for a second, imagine what happens to the world as it fills up with more and more disciples of Jesus people who are surrendering their passions and letting his passions replace their own. What does the world look like as there's more of us living this way and how much of the brokenness and injustice of our world starts to go away as we, more and more of us, surrender to Jesus' way? So what I think the gospel says to us is that we have a purpose and that's to encounter Jesus. It's to know him, it's to encounter his grace, it's to surrender ourselves to him, to be changed by him, and then go and take that message of who God is and how good he is to the nations. That's what the gospel, I think, says to us, even about poverty. So the next question is, what does the gospel have to say to people experiencing poverty today, to the poor about poverty? And I wanna just talk for just a minute about the nature of poverty, what it is and what it does. Um, For those of us at Compassion, we've chosen to place this issue under the authority of Scripture and say we're going to understand poverty in light of this biblical framework and this biblical narrative. And and so I believe that there is a spiritual root underneath poverty. We start with the story of creation, right? Because we know God created a world that was good. And it was, it was whole. He uses this word shalom to describe a world that all, all these right relationships with each other and with God and with creation. And, and you know the story if you've been to church even a couple times that the fall happened and sin entered the world and our world didn't look good and whole and perfect anymore. And because of that fall, there's all this pain and brokenness that entered the world. Um, my family at home, we like to read with our kids this Jesus Storybook Bible that some of you have probably seen and maybe read with your kids. And um, you might recognize this language. My son, when he was about five or six, he started, any time he would like, if he fell and hurt himself or he'd get in a fight with his brother, anything that was like a little bit off and upsetting, he'd say to me, Daddy, I wish Adam hadn't believed the terrible lie. I'm like, yeah, I'm with you, me too. I wish that too. But he was beginning even to see his own pain in light of this brokenness that's in the world, and I I hope that there's hope for something different. We could spend a lot of time maybe on the connection between living in a fallen world and the existence of poverty, but I'll just say this, I'm convinced that poverty exists as a result of the spiritual condition of the world, and if that's true, then a spiritual response is what we need if we're ever gonna solve the real problem. And, And again, if you've been to church more than once, you know that the gospel does respond. Right, the Bible tells us, it talks about Israel waiting and waiting for this promised king that would finally come and then Jesus shows up and he announces himself in the synagogue when he reads scripture and says, here I am. You know, I'm the king that you've been waiting for and I think through his life and his death and his resurrection, Jesus sets creation back on a path towards healing and restoration. Romans 5.12 says it this way, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, And in this way death came to all people. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. So Jesus' life is the beginning of this plan of God's to bring healing 
to all of his creation. And so now here we are in 2019 and poverty still exists. But I believe Jesus showed us the way towards healing and he made it possible. But so what does that mean then for those who are experiencing suffering still today? What is that, like what good is the gospel if people are left to suffer, right? That's the question we get. And I think we need to understand poverty holistically because what, what we have heard over and over from people who live in or have lived in and experienced poverty is that poverty hurts in all kinds of ways. It, you know, it hurts to not be able to eat when you're hungry. It hurts to not be able to go to school when you're a kid. It hurts to have to walk miles to get clean water if it's even available. All those things hurt, yeah. But what we have heard over and over is that the, there's, there's one worst thing. Is that the worst part of poverty is the voices that you hear in your head as a child that say, look at you. You're not worth anything. Look, at, look around you, right? Everything's, everything's broken. This is it. Poverty makes it impossible to hope. Makes it impossible to have hope. Oop, that was my second. I went over. But poverty makes it impossible to have hope that anything can change. And so for that child in poverty, if you feed them and you give them a chance to go to school, those are really good and great things to do. That's awesome. But if you don't give them a better voice to listen to, I just don't think you've done enough. And so we introduce children to Jesus because Jesus' voice is the one that says, I see you, and you matter. And there's more for you than this. The message of the gospel to a child in poverty is that God sees and knows you and has a better plan for you. So I want to introduce um, a friend of mine to you. So just maybe a show of hands. How many have gone through already the compassion experience out there? There's a handful of you, awesome. How many of you um, met or learned about a little girl named Kiwi from the Philippines? There's a few of you, that's awesome. So here's an update. Uh, Kiwi isn't a little girl anymore. Uh, and second, she is with us today. So could you welcome my friend Kiwi? So Compassion invited Kiwi to come to Canada recently and they sent her to Winnipeg in December. <laughs> and I was like, she's never coming back to Canada if we don't fix this. So we've spent a few weeks in BC, we've been in Victoria and Kelowna and now here we are today. And it's been, it's been awesome getting to know you and working together a little bit. So, but I want you to hear a little bit from Kiwi about, about uh, what this has meant to her. So do you want to tell us just a little bit about where you grew up and uh, the beginning of your story. Yeah. Hi everyone, good morning. You know, Victoria, uh, BC changed my, my, my feeling about Canada. <laughs> 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 I was in Winnipeg last weekend, it, it flurried, and I'm like, oh my gosh, why? But I'm so happy to be here. It's not hard to praise the Lord in a, <laughs> such a beautiful um, city or state. Um, you know, my real name is not Kiwi, my, though it's cute, it sounds like the fruit. My real name is Kiwani, it sounds Hawaiian, but I was not born and raised in Hawaii, I wish. But I know that God has a plan and a purpose why I was born in the Philippines. I was born to a very poor family. My dad is an alcoholic, and every night my parents would fight because of his alcoholism. 
There are three brothers ahead of me which died because of lack of medical attention. My third brother, he was supposed to be born cesarean section, but my parents could not afford the medical care necessary. So what they did, they cut my mom open without proper anesthesia, and my mom screamed for pain, but my brother didn't survive. But after that, I was born in another sister. And growing up in the Philippines, it's really, really hard. And I remember when I was a kid, I would beg my parents, Ma, Pa, please, I could not sleep because we were so hungry. But even my parents would give up the food that they're about to eat that night, which is most of the time rice and soy sauce or rice and salt. It would still be not sufficient. I remember as a young kid, I would look at my neighbor's window and pretend to watch their television. But I would look at their table and see food and wonder, why do they have food tonight and us not? And I remember vividly when apples were imported from America or maybe Canada to the Philippines. And I would beg my mama, Ma, please, I want to taste this apple. But even a rotten apple, we could not afford to buy. So this is just a, such a picture of poverty when I was a kid. Yeah. And you've shared with me a little bit, there was a, there was a thing that happened in your dad's life that kind of changed a little bit of the course of your family's life. Do you want to share that with us? You know what? Nothing, absolutely nothing is impossible with the Lord. Mm. When everybody said, my dad is not going to change, he's going to die an alcoholic, one day my dad picked up a track. I'm reading material about Jesus. And in the track it says to go to a crusade. And he went to a crusade and he heard about Jesus. And in the crusade he received Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior. And for the very first time, my dad went home sober. And my mom was like, what's wrong with you? What happened to you? <laughs> are you sick? Why are you sober? My, mom's, my dad said, no, I'm not sick. I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and you need to come to church with me. So we went to church, and me and my sister, we would sit in Sunday school. And in Sunday school, the children would sing about Jesus, that Jesus loves the little children, all the children in the world, red, yellow, black, and white, and that he cares and he provides. But as a young kid, I could not comprehend that. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? If he cares and if he provides, then why are we so poor? But you know what? This is not a sad story because we have a good father in heaven. Because at the age of seven, I was registered in Compassion and somebody from Australia picked up a packet and he started to sponsor me. And the very first thing in his letter, he said, Kiwi, you are pretty and Kiwi, Jesus loves you. I have never thought of myself as pretty when I was a kid. <laughs> Even my parents didn't tell me that I was beautiful. I thought pretty are just for kids with nice clothes, who goes to school with bow in their hair. But me, it could not be me. But then later on, I begin to realize, Lord, is this how you see me? That I'm beautiful in your sight. That I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. That I am a child of the one true God. So, I begin to open my Bible. I begin to grasp the promises of God for myself. I begin to memorize, memorize verses in the Bible. And as I was in high school, I told my mom, Mama, I don't want to be poor anymore. I want to get out of this situation. I want to go to college. I want to take up something. But even my parents would give up or would work 24-7, it would not be a reality, but there's nothing, absolutely nothing is impossible with God, right? When I was about to graduate college, uh, high school, Compassion told me, Kiwi, you're gonna go to college and we're gonna pay for everything. 
And this lady who is standing in front of you right now is a physical therapist working in a hospital in Dallas, Texas. Mm -hmm. God is so good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, after graduation, I need to take a very, very difficult exam. And I can see a lot of young kids, young people here. And I, I know that you know the feeling of um, failing. Well, older people too. You don't mm -hmm. want to fail. You don't want to uh, do the unknown. You're scared of something. And I'm, I was scared of that too. And I told the Lord, Lord, you said in your word, we're not the tail but the head. So I want to top my exam. But in reality, I was just so scared to fail the exam. But every time I opened my Bible, God would tell me, Kiwi, is there anything too hard for me? Nothing, absolutely nothing is too hard for the Lord. All of his promises for us are yes and amen. Out of 1,700 students who took the exam, I landed 10th place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and because of that, they gave me a medal. And as I was receiving this medal, I told the Lord, Lord, if only my sponsors were here, I'm going to give this medal to them. Every year in our church, we have a prayer and fasting, and I usually don't join because I was hungry when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> but that year, I said, I'm going to join. And I prayed for that I'm going to see my sponsors. January came, February passed, and March came, and a group of Australian sponsors came to the Philippines, and they asked me to give my testimony. And after that, they said, Kiwi, we want you to come to Australia. We're going to pay for everything, and you're going to meet your sponsors. And I saw this two couple coming up from the stage, coming up, coming towards the stage, and I ran to them <laughs> and hugged them. And over and over again, I told them, thank you so much. You didn't just change my life, but my family. And one day, I know my community, because my mom is now a pastor of a small community church in the Philippines. God is so faithful. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. You know what? <laughs> 10 years ago, I came to the United States to work as a physical therapist. And seven years ago, I got married to a wonderful man from Chattanooga, Tennessee. I got myself a southern boy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, my husband's name is Terry Cook, and he's an executive chef. Imagine I was hungry when I was a kid, and now I'm married <laughs> to an executive chef. <laughs> Only God can surprise you like that. <laughs> and during that wedding, I invited my parents to come to the United States. And you know where I took my parents? I took my parents to an apple orchard. <laughs> And my dad was picking up apples from the ground. And I said, no, dad, God has blessed us exceedingly, abundantly, more than we could ever ask or think that we're now able to pick up apples from the tree. God withheld that rotten apples years and years ago because he has something better for us. God is just so good. Mm -hmm. God is so good and faithful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, awesome. So maybe just for a minute, share with us a little bit about sponsorship in your life. And, and as we consider that opportunity today, like what, what, what is the actual opportunity in front of us? You know, when I was in, in Australia, I saw this 15-year-old boy who's sponsoring his own sponsored child. And I said, I was 24 at the time. And I said, how does he do that if he's 
just 15 years old and he sponsors his own child, does he get money from his parents? And the parents said, no. Every Friday and Saturday, he plays the guitar and would put his sponsored child's picture beside him and he says, I'm basking for my sponsored child and that's how he sponsored his own sponsored child. And I said, if he can do that and he's 15, I can do that, I'm 24. <laughs> and I can change other people's lives too. You know what? What amazes me most is that God uses people to change other people's lives. He blessed me, he blessed us, not just to keep it to ourselves, but to be a blessing to other people. And I know that he chose us to be his hands and feet. <laughs> his hands and feet to change other people's lives. Isn't that amazing? I am now a sponsor of three kids. Two from the Philippines, because I'm biased. <laughs> and one from Haiti. And three years ago, I went back home to the Philippines and met my sponsored children. And I said, hang in there, do not give up. If God can do it to me, he can do it to you and through you. And one day, God will give you a platform to tell your friends, to tell your neighbor, to tell your relatives or a congregation that we have a good, good Father in heaven. To him be all the glory and honor and praises. Thank you so mm -hmm. much, and God bless you all. Mm -hmm. Isn't that awesome? When I hear... Kiwi speak, I, I, it just, I feel this excitement because you can see what God can do with just a little bit of action, right, from that couple from Australia, a little bit of them and a lot of God and what God can accomplish, it's amazing. Just in a couple minutes that we have left, two things that I really wanna convey about compassion in this organization, two commitments of ours. The first is our commitment to the local church. Absolute commitment. Everything we do is carried out by a local church in a community that's affected by poverty. What we have to offer more than anything is the gospel, and we entrust that to the local church to deliver it. It's because we believe in the church, it's because we believe that God's one plan to reach the world is through the church. I met a man named Pastor Victor in Ecuador a couple years ago. Victor pastors a church um, in this neighborhood that's marked by violence and gangs and drugs, and he's fearless. He'll stand up to anybody, and he's got 400 kids showing up to his church every week, and the effect that his leadership is having on them in that neighborhood is just amazing. And he told me before I left, he said, you know what, this is the neighborhood where I grew up in. He says, I, I showed up to this church when I was a kid. I was a, uh, Compassion sponsored me. And he said, there's two things. I, I started coming to this church and I started learning about Jesus and that I had a father who loved me. So those sponsors were sending money. That allowed me to keep attending this program. He said, my sponsors wrote me letters similar to the letters that Kiwi was getting. I said, Victor, we're proud of you. Victor, keep going, don't give up. And he said, because of that encouragement and that faithful encouragement, he said, that's what helped him to believe what he was hearing. That's what, we're, that's what we get to do for each other, is we get to remind each other of how good God is and what he means to us. The second thing I wanna convey really quickly is that compassion is absolutely committed to the gospel and bringing that with us wherever we go. There's over two million kids registered with compassion today that we're supporting through 7,000 churches around the world. Just an incredible number, but here's it also an incredible number, that in the last year, 150,000 children made a decision to follow Christ in a compassion program. Isn't that awesome? 
We have just a little bit of research that we've done that tells us that we think for probably for every one of those kids, there's three, maybe four family members as well that are being enfolded into the life of that church and coming to faith in Jesus as well. The effects of what God does when we're willing to surrender some of what we have to him ripples out and it's incredible. So on your way in, hopefully you saw that table there with the, the photos of the kids. Those really are real, real kids who really are waiting for sponsors just the same way that Kiwi's photo was on a table once. Um, here's something super exciting about those photos that you might not know. Every one of those kids has already met or their family has already met a pastor who said to them things like this, our church is here and we're ready to make sure you don't go to sleep hungry again. Our church is here and we're ready to make sure that you can go to school, get an education and live a better life hopefully than the one you were born into. Our church is here to make sure that you can see a doctor if you need to, have medical care, but but here's the exciting thing too. The vast majority of those kids, until they met that pastor, had never heard of Jesus. And the minute they got registered into that program, they start learning about who their Father in Heaven is and how much He loves them and what that means for them and their life and their potential. And so today, that's the, the invitation for you is to, to partner with us. Add your voice to ours that says to these kids, you really do matter. This isn't it for you. This isn't your destiny. Right? There's more. You mattered someone because you mattered us. It's God entrusting us with that message that we get to show who he is and how good he is and how trustworthy he is. Just the details, at the, the cost to sponsor is $41 per month. And I want to be really clear that there, I don't want you to feel any sort of pressure from us to you have to do this to be a good Christian. That's not it at all. Um, don't feel that kind of pressure. Don't feel like we're putting guilt on you. Some of you can't, some of us can't afford $41 a month and that's totally, that is okay. It really, really is. Um, for, for some of us, for me, for my family, you know, we, we can and $41 goes out the door pretty quickly uh, when I think about Netflix and Spotify and T-Ball and all that stuff, right? And if, 40, if those kids that we sponsor aren't worth 41 of our dollars, then, then I need to reevaluate for myself what the priorities are. Um, but I hope that you're feeling excitement about what we can, what we can be involved in, what we can, what we can do. And I also know this, lots of you are already sponsoring kids. And I want you to know that it would be impossible for me to overstate what an impact you're having when you sponsor Compassion Kids. I hope you're getting a little bit of a taste of it today through hearing Kiwi's story. But the impact is just immense. And so I wanna thank you for, for being our partners and invite you to consider maybe you can sponsor another one today. My family, we sponsor a couple kids. Uh, we started by sponsoring this guy in Honduras whose name is Roni. And now every night before I tuck my son into bed, he goes, Dad, we have to pray for Roni tonight. And so my hope is that my kids, as we grow up in Yero, my kids grow up understanding that their lives aren't normal for most kids in the world, that this is a little bit different and that we need to have a lot of gratitude for what our lives look like. And I hope my kids are growing up learning that it, sometimes it's important for us to do without something that we want so someone else can have something that they need. But most of all, I hope that my kids are gonna grow up knowing that their lives aren't about themselves. Our lives aren't about us. It's about surrendering to something greater than us. So the worship team's gonna come back up so we can sing again. After we're done, there's tables out there, there's kids out there. I would love to see you there. I'd love to help you find a child for your family to sponsor and help you sign up. It's a really quick 90 seconds to fill in that form. 
the hard part sometimes is choosing, but we can help you with that too. Um, we'd love to see you there, answer any questions you might have. Um, most of all, I'm just grateful for the partnership that we have here at Central. I forgot to say, we do have a lot of kids from the country of Columbia, which we did last time we were here as well, because the hope is maybe we can kind of point your church together to have a big impact in one area, and maybe one day we can bring a whole bunch of you down there to deliver this message in person that, hey, you really do matter. So you can sponsor kids in Columbia, you can sponsor kids in other countries, it's up to you. But, uh, but thank you for being partners with us, thank you for joining us. I just wanna pray as, as we close. Father God, I feel just so much gratitude that you invite us to be part of your work in the world and that as you bring healing and restoration and the gospel to this world, that you involve us in that. We know you could do that without us, but you choose to let us in on it. And I'm grateful for that, God. Thank you for your church. Thank you for the witness of the church. We pray that we'd be worthy of that witness. God, thank you for Central and the impact that they are having in this community and around the world in all kinds of ways. God, thank you that, that you, you let us have that kind of impact on your behalf. And I pray that our efforts would continue to multiply, that more and more would come to know who you are and that your name would be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' strong and mighty name. Amen.